0: Few artists have navigated their ways seamlessly through musical styles like the great Esther Phillips. At age 14, in 1949, she was already a fully formed vocalist, winning talent shows and coming to local prominence in the famed Watts neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. Though she began as a blues singer, Esther's talents were far too vast to stay locked down into any one genre. Your brush with greatness was in the world of R&B after a string of hits in the early 1950s, accompanied by legendary producer Johnny Otis. A bit later, she turned her eye to the country world, where a young Kenny Rogers helped sign her to his brother's record label. She would then record one of the very first country soul albums, The Countryside of Esther. This album is a masterpiece. Even the great Aretha Franklin insisted on giving her Grammy to Esther Phillips when they were both nominated in 1971. Though she didn't live past the age of 50, Esther Phillips lived several lifetimes worth of musical journeys. This episode is dedicated to her and to the countless artists like her who refused to limit their scope and stretched the possibilities of what music could actually become. My name is Micah McKee. I'm a songwriter. And this is American how many, 100.
1: How
2: many? I wonder but I really don't want to know.
3: Broadcasting from the musical center of the universe into the vast stretches of the universe, this is American 100.
0: Welcome to American 100, the show where we discuss the vast and not-so-random beauty of pop music. This is my trusted robot companion, Rando. Say hi, Rando. Hi. And at the end of every episode, Rando randomly selects two songs and a year from the Billboard Year End Hot 100 chart for us to discuss for the following episode. And at the end of the last episode, Rando chose the year 1959 and the numbers 69 and 95, which correlate with So Fine by The Fiestas and Baby Talk by Jan and Dean. So without further ado, let's travel further back in time than we ever have before to the surprisingly groundbreaking year of 1959. The most important trait that a songwriter must cultivate is the ability to listen. Listening intently with passion until you find yourself in the space between the notes the space that I like to call the gray zone. This is the story of a man who lived his life in that gray zone and how his ability to listen to and love music changed the world. In 1956, two years before the creation of the Billboard year-end Hot 100, Elvis Presley had a landmark hit with the song Hound Dog. But the song had already been recorded years earlier in definitive fashion by the incomparable Big Mama Thornton. You ain't
3: nothing but a hound dog door. You ain't nothing but a hound dog door.
0: The driving force behind a- Thornton's howling vocal I is the rhythm. You know, know. And the man behind that rhythm is the man heard here, behind the drum kit, Mr. Johnny
3: Otis.
0: Johnny Otis is one of the wildest, most imaginative figures in all of rock and roll. He was one of the greatest listeners of American rock and roll music, and many would contend that he's even one of its chief inventors. Born Ioannis Volotis to Greek immigrant parents in 1921, Johnny's early life experience was different than most white kids in America. He grew up in black neighborhoods surrounded by black art, music, and vernacular. And he grew to love it. His tan skin and ebony hair resembled that of the black artists that he idolized. Duke Ellington, Lionel Hampton. And at an early age, he decided that if he was going to become successful playing black music, he was going to fully immerse himself in and align himself with black people. Johnny said, as a kid, I decided that if our society dictated that one had to be black or white, I would be black. Johnny's first musical love was jazz, and he found himself playing drums in many big bands and swing outfits throughout the 1940s. Here is Johnny on drums, accompanied by the masterful vibraphone and laudatory exclamations of the great Lionel Hampton. He found his first big success in the Midwest, playing at the Barrel House Club in Omaha, Nebraska, and eventually formed his own Johnny Otis Orchestra. In 1946, he backed up the ubiquitous ink spots, and that same year, he recorded this smoldering classic, Harlem Nocturne. ¶¶ This tune is all about listening to the space between, the smoke that rises to fill that space, a smoke so thick and persistent you can hear the sound of it lingering. Harlem Nocturne was such a hit that it afforded Otis the opportunity to move back to L.A. and open his own Barrel House Club. It was in Los Angeles at the beginning of the 1950s that Johnny Otis would put his ear to the fertile ground and turn himself over to the embrace of rhythm and blues. In Los Angeles, Johnny Otis would produce and aid in the success of dozens of black R&B artists, including rock and roll's Da Vinci, Little Richard. Many white artists at this point were trying to appropriate black music into their own. But what made Johnny Otis different is his ability to actually listen to black musicians, not to see what he could gain but to see what he could learn. His immersion into the world of black rhythm and blues led him to one of his most successful collaborations, where he and a 17-year-old singer named Etta James sat down to write a song called The Wallflower, Dance With Me,
3: Henry.
0: It was Etta James's first hit single, and it would become one of the biggest hits of
2: 1955.
0: But Johnny Otis wasn't going to rest on his laurels here. He kept on listening. And while touring the country, he heard a chain gang singing a peculiar pattern. He fused it with concepts that he had heard While performing with Count Otis Matthews Big Band when he was a teenager, here's Johnny Otis himself describing the process.
3: Matthews would bring uh, two cans, tin cans, taped with little pebbles or something inside of them. Set them on the piano, and the highlight of the evening would be when he would look out and find the prettiest girls he could find and call them up, and give them these cans and tell them to just shake them. And he goes, and he'd tell me to play Shaving a Haircut, Six Bits on the drums. I'd go. None of us at the time youngsters thought that that was anything profound. We're looking to be with Count Basie or Duke Ellington and hope to move up that way. But as I look back, that may have been the most profound musical experience of my life.
0: The result was one of the most important singles in American history, Willie and the Hand Jive. the Greek-American jazz great-turned-songwriter and guru had lived in the spaces between white and black, between rhythm and blues, and found his place. And the success of Willie and the Hand Jive in 1958 leads us finally to the number 69 spot on the Billboard year-end Hot 100 of the year 1959.
3: So fine.
0: So fine. So fine. Yeah. My this is So Fine by The Fiestas, written by Johnny Otis, and in its brief runtime, it showcases Otis's ability to extrapolate musical concepts from his immersion in black culture. Though the lyrics are simple, these harmonies are dark and spiritual. They come from a place deep in the black psyche, tapping into the pain, the transcendence, the joy of the black experience. This group, the Fiestas, was discovered while the owner of a record label heard them harmonizing in the bathroom adjacent to the label's office. The Fiestas landed in the care of Johnny Otis, and So Fine was written as their debut single. It was an instant hit. Johnny Otis's life and legacy is complicated, as most American music tends to be. In my opinion, Johnny Otis didn't appropriate black culture. He embraced it and understood it because he listened. Through the art and skill of listening, Johnny Otis reinterpreted the jazz and the R&B that he was ensconced in as a young man and synthesized it to lay down the cornerstones of rock and roll. Etta James once said, Johnny Otis knows how to pray. She recognized the spiritual connection that he had with black music and how that connection moves us all. Coming up Duop goes West. You're listening to American 100. Hey folks, thanks for listening to American One Hundred. I'm Micah McKee and I wrote the original music for this show and produced it along with Asher Griffith. And if you like content like this, then uh, think about dropping something in our jar. Head over to Patreon.com/slash cicada radio. Even a pledge of as little as a dollar a month means the world to us. We do this show because we love music and we love radio, so head to patreon.com slash cicada radio. And uh, help us out, if you can. Thanks. Happy birthday.
3: Happy birthday, baby. Oh, I love you so.
0: Sixteen Candles. When we think of doo-wop, we tend to think of letter jackets and slick, quaffed hair, drive-ins and milkshakes. Roadsters racing each other on a Saturday night and the throes of young love. But where did these tropes come from and why did one curious songwriting style become so influential? You always are the one you love. This is the Mills the Brothers. One. They came to prominence in the 1930s and 1940s, and over the course of their career, they sold over 50 million records. The brothers Donald, Harry, John, and Herbert were born into a family of nine. Their father was an actual barber in a barbershop quartet. Even though he owned his own barbershop, The family wasn't rich, and they didn't own instruments. So they created them with their voices. John took the tuba parts, Herbert and Harry took the trumpets, and Donald held down the trombone. The practice of replacing instrumentation with the human voice grew in popularity and was embraced by scores of vocal groups, including the Moonglows, who we talked about back in the 1969
3: episode.
0: But the stylistic hallmark that Duop would stumble across in its peak, and one that they'd pass down to generations of pop producers and songwriters, was the Echo. Echo. Black teenage kids would meet underneath bridges, in gyms, locker rooms, and hallways to harness the reverb within so that they could approximate the orchestras that they heard on the radio. These echoes added textures that brought emotional depth to these songs, which had otherwise simple melodies and earnest lyrics. The black youth would become the primary purveyors of the genre known as doo wop, dominating the airwaves, school dances, and drive ins. Records were easy to produce since there wasn't sweeping orchestration or instrumentation involved. But the performers were often incredibly easy to exploit, and record companies made a killing off of black singers with impunity. Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers were revolutionary. They were the first pop group completely comprised of Teenagers and were the proto-boy band. They brought the doo-wop style into the realm of the nascent rock and roll genre. We harmonized every night on the street corner, Frankie Lyman remembered, until the neighbors would call the cops to run us away. By the late 1950s, Frankie Lyman had left the teenagers to forge his own solo act. Doo Wop's popularity as a genre was fading, but its influence had never been greater. Enter William Jan Barry and Dean Ormsby
3: Torrance. <laughs>
0: Barry and Torrance formed a high school doo-wop group called The Barons, but they insisted on incorporating instrumentation. Drummer Sandy Nelson, who would later to go on to play drums on the New Orleans classic Oop-Oop-A-Doo, and future Beach Boy pianist and singer Bruce Johnston joined The Barons, and this group eventually evolved into the act known as Jan and Dean. And they would find themselves on Spot 95, of the Billboard year-end Hot 100 of 1959. Baby Talk's doo-wop influence is apparent from the very beginning, but it's the production that puts it into strange territory. It was recorded in a garage by Lou Adler and Herb Alpert. And the bizarre slapback reverb that saturates the recording is a notable departure from the cascading hall reverbs of duop records gone by. Here was a sun-splashed, even proto-psychedelic vibe. By combining doo-wop close harmonies with off-kilter effects, unusual rhythms and instrumentation, Jan and Dean were some of the first musicians to arrive at the genre known as surf pop. Surf pop itself became part of a larger musical style and ethos dubbed the California Sound. The California Sound romanticized the beach, surfing, hot rods, and a devil-may-care attitude. But beneath the superficialities, there lay a sonic complexity that makes the California sound so compelling and unique. Jan and Dean's strange and freewheeling production would directly influence some of the most important purveyors of American pop music, Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys. The Beach Boys would take the California sound to the outer limits of American pop, and set the standard for mind-altering pop music. The California sounds washed out waves of color and tone enveloped the world. And to think it all started with teenagers in Chicago, Detroit, Kansas City, and New York, who thought to turn their voices into an orchestra. There's plenty more after the break You're listening to American 100.
1: There are only two kinds of levees, those that have failed, and those that will fail. This is an old adage used by engineers to describe the futility of flood walls meant to beat back the forces of nature. Most New Orleanians would agree with this statement. They might also agree with the slightly altered version. There are only two kinds of pumps, those that have failed, and those that will fail. Paving everything and having the water shoot into canals and culverts and drainage as quick as we possibly can get it is not the answer that, you know, exacerbates the problem as far as I can tell from what I've read, the little bit of learning
0: I've done. You know, pumping it out is only part of the solution to this problem.
1: New Orleans is a city surrounded by water and studded with infrastructure meant to push the water out, but despite its best efforts, the streets continue to flood a constant reminder that the Delta is hungry to reclaim the land that humans have taken from it.
0: You know, big storms are are few and far between down here, but flooding is a, a constant. You're always gonna have to deal with that year in and year out. Even those minor rainstorms are causing streets to flood. Down here, it's just, it seems
2: like it's a way of life that you need to figure out how to manage the water.
1: But as the city sinks further and the effects of climate change steadily advance, the problem is only intensifying. And with overburdened and outdated infrastructure, New Orleans is in a fight that it cannot win. From the crooked cobbles of the French Quarter to the marbled halls of Washington, debates rage over whether to fight the water until the end or to wave the white flag and let the city sink back into the swamp.
3: I mean, if we're gonna adapt and live here in this landscape, we really have to find a way to coexist with the with, with the Delta, with, like as a functioning part of the ecosystem.
1: But what if neither of these scenarios happened? What if the city gives up on achieving victory over water and instead focuses on coexisting with it? On River Runs Backwards, we take a deep dive into local stories to see how the city is faring in its age-old flood fight. And reveal history on how the city manages its water and the benefits of letting the water back in. Find River Runs Backwards on cicadaradio.com or wherever you listen to your podcast.
0: Today in lieu of our usual interview segment, we're going to recommend four of our favorite interviews with musical giants.
2: My skin is black.
0: Nina Simone appeared on BBC's Hard Talk in 1999. This interview really illuminates Nina's power and unabashed humanity. Nina was never one to mince words and doesn't do so here. Her life and perspectives are as compelling and intriguing as her music. She is firm and stern, but anything but stoic. Her charm is palpable, and just like listening to a Nina Simone album, this interview is enlightening Moving and essential
2: to make them a conscious of what has been done to my people around the world And then when it's ready then when you're happy and the, the crowd is happy it's, when they're ready. I play for them they have got to take me as I am and recognize That I'm a star as well as a woman and they have to deal with the two is
0: Keith Richards is one of the shadowy heroes of rock and roll folklore. As the chief guitarist for the Rolling Stones, Keith Richards has the dubious popular distinction of being immortal. A mythic, Loki-like character, mischievous and mercurial, with an undeniable talent. But in Matt Sweeney's fantastic web series, Guitar Moves, Keith Richards pulls back the veil and cuts through the haze. You know, and yet
3: I don't know anybody that's yet dared to try to seriously cover Peggy Sue, like even now, even now, have they? No, some people do it on stage, but you know, some of those iconic records Eddie Cochran, man, they come on everybody, Mm -hmm. Summertime Blues, Mm -hmm. something else. Nobody's going to touch that stuff with a
0: stick. He discusses his influences in a truly intimate and revealing way, and suddenly the magic behind the magic man seems a lot more like mad science mixed with a whole lot of passion. Matt Sweeney's fantastic series also features luminaries like Albert Hammond Jr. and St. Vincent, but his conversation with Keith Richards is one of the most fascinating. Quincy Jones is one of my personal musical heroes. I find his determination to achieve greatness in the face of incredible odds, humbling and inspiring. In a 2014 interview on CBC, Quincy gives us the short version of his extensive life experience and career, and in doing so, we get a glimpse of his wisdom Patience and tenacity. I also highly recommend his 2001 publication, Q, the autobiography of Quincy Jones, for a moving look at his incredible life.
2: Tell me about this chemistry between you two, because there was obviously something special that you must oh, have yeah. some pr- perspective on now. There what was is. it with you and Ray Charles? I don't know. Most of the time, it's a common interest, right? You really loved him. Yeah. Oh, and vice uh, What did you learn from him? Everything. He taught me how to, how to read music in Braille. Because he had sight till he was six, you know. He could see. And so he knew what the, the notation was, you know. And uh, boy, we, we, we had some times together amazing times together. But we all used to go to play a, a country club, a Seattle tennis club, pop music with white, white uh, cardigans on and bow ties. Then we'd change our suits and go to the Washington Social and Education Club, play for strippers. We used to do comedy, everything like that. And, you know, we just were fearless, absolutely fearless. We played against uh, Cap Calloway, played with Billy Holiday when we were 14. And it's like a big pebble on a Small beats, you know, because when you go to New York, all the New York guys are scared of the competition because the best guys in the world are there, you know. But you come in from this little city with all that confidence and stuff, so you don't get scared easily. <laughs>
0: In a rare German interview from 1988, the 20th century master of jazz composition, Miles Davis, lets us in on his thought process.
3: When you say people, you mean critics. Because people don't say that kind of stuff. You know, they don't say, What's he doing? Unless they're white. You know, what's he doing? What kind of. That's what they said when I was in the plug nickel, I think it was in the 60s and had uh, yeah, the Black Panthers, you know? And and their, their paper was saying, this motherfucker, the president. But You know, I, I, I told some friends of mine, I said, they're gonna be writing like that. You know, that's the way it's gonna be. Composition's gonna come out like that. Prince come up with it, right? He writes like the Black Panther paper was. We went to Chicago, we are playing like
0: this, with Tony Williams, you know, Tony was 17. In the late 1980s, Miles struggled to maintain his relevance, and you can definitely hear this struggle in his tone of voice. One of the highlights of this interview is when Miles references his now mythic collaboration with Prince in 1987, the full video of which is quite difficult to track down. Though he is known for his mysterious and even cryptic style of conversation, Miles is unafraid of dropping some cold, hard truth on you at any moment. All right, Rando, what's that time again. Time to randomly select the year and the two songs that we are going to talk about on the next episode of American 100.
3: Commencing randomization. The year 1962 and the numbers 44 and 23.
0: Which correlate with Baby It's You by the Shirelles and Twistin' the Night Away by Sam Cooke. American 100 is produced by myself, Micah McKee, along with Asher Griffith, and is presented, as always, by Cicada Radio. And in closing, I'd like to pay tribute to a pillar of the New Orleans music community that we lost this week, Miss Chelsea Sullivan. Chelsea was a tireless supporter and organizer of New Orleans music and musicians, and was widely respected and loved in our community. Even though her loss has sent shockwaves through our musical family, Chelsea would want to be celebrated. And she had an unwavering devotion to the band The Grateful Dead. So we'll leave you today with Truckin' from their 1970 album, American Beauty. Here's to you, Chelsea. Safe travels on your way to the next universe. From all of us at American 100, thanks for listening and always keep a song in your heart. Truckin', got my
3: chips cashed in. Keep truckin',
2: like the dude of me together.
3: Oh, let's life
1: Just keep chucking. Oh, of neon and a flashing marquees out on Main Street. Chicago, New York, Detroit, and it's all on the same street.
3: Your typical city in a typical day.
2: new
3: This is Cicada Radio. Sing love die.